This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks our dedicated books and comic show i am just one of your hosts here matthew rushing and with me as he is always the wonderful the incredible nigh indispensable christopher jones <laughs> how are you doing chris oh matthew i'm doing just fine you know it's always fun every week to hop on here and talk star trek books and comics with you and I don't know if you realize this, Matthew, but this is our 200th episode of Literary... Ter Wait a minute, Matthew. We don't host this show anymore. No, we don't, Chris. <laughs> but we really did want to come on and say congratulations to Literary Treks making it to 200 episodes. Can you believe that it was 2012 on November 17th that we dropped our very first episode with Mr. Dayton Ward as our first guest? Uh, it's It's been a long road, as they say. It has been, yeah. I remember sitting around planning literary treks, and I, I think I was planning it actually maybe even before you and I met, but it was around the time and you were writing book reviews. You started writing book reviews for the website, and when you came along, because I wanted to do this show, and I thought, but I don't know enough about the books really to do this show. And then you came along, and I knew, okay, now now we have enough knowledge to do this show. And we pulled it together, and we started it. And it's incredible that it has been going on five years now. And when I had to leave, you kept it going, and Dan came in, and you guys kept it going, and then Bruce came in. And then you pass the torch to them. So it's been amazing. And congratulations, Dan and Bruce, for taking us to the 200 mark and keeping Star Trek books alive for everyone. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that I love about uh, this show and, and and just the books in general is, is honestly, you know, for the longest time, look, the, the first uh, Star Trek we're about to get uh, in a long time is Discovery. And the books, through all of it, through all of the 
uh, lapses and not having any Star Trek, the books have been there. And I think they have kept the fandom going. And when you look at um, the the work that's been done, um, it's phenomenal. The, and the people that we've gotten to have on the show and to talk to, the authors who are just fantastic people. Uh, and I really enjoy each and every one of them. I, I've enjoyed their friendship. I've enjoyed their support of this show. Uh, I'm so glad that continues on with Bruce and Dan, two people who love the books as much as we do, Chris, and I think continue to spread that passion. Uh, and I'm very proud uh, of what we built uh, in this show, and I'm very proud that it continues to be one of our longest-running shows here on the network. And I think uh, the literature itself deserves to be in the upper echelons of Star Trek fans' uh, mindset because it really is something that has carried the torch when there was nothing else to carry the torch. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I couldn't say it any better. So well, thank you, Matthew, for joining me at the beginning and helping build this show. And thank you to everyone who's listening for supporting the show over the past five years. And Matthew, I think it's time for us to quit talking and let's hand this over to Dan and Bruce. So let's bring in the real hosts of Literary Treks. Absolutely. Well, that was kind of a blast from the past hearing from Matt and Chris like that. I mean, that really brings me back to when I was just listening to the show. You know, I wasn't on the show and just a fan of fan of literary treks. So, you know, really cool. Kind of uh, a little bit of a flashback there. Yeah, that was back in the days when I first listened to them. Uh, you know, I listened from the very first episode and continued on. And I thought, you know, this show's never going to last. And now it's gone. <laughs> 200 episodes. <laughs> Just kidding. I wanted it to last. It's that good. And it was always great to hear Matt and Chris because I, a lot of times I was agreeing with what they were saying. And, and of course, hearing the authors on and such like that. I mean, this was like everything I ever wanted in a podcast because I wanted a podcast dedicated to Star Trek books. I even wrote in to the ready room like a year before asking for that. And Chris like, oh, we're working on something. We have something in the pipeline. And I waited and I waited and finally it premiered and i never would have dreamed that i would be on the show and be the one ruining it <laughs> awesome and i mean right from day one i mean great guests on the show I, I, if i remember right i think in the very first episode they even had dayton ward on the show i mean what a great way to start yeah i wondered if he was going to be on every episode hey wait did you hear that you I should have been canceled after that one i don't understand how you're still on the air you're still here yeah. After wow. all these years? <laughs> they never showed me the door. I've been sitting here for 199 episodes looking for the exit. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Dayton Ward. I, I, I can't believe it. He must have been hiding behind the couch. That's amazing. By the way, guys, mini bar in the green room. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where you've been. Pro tip. Wow. You should have sp spoken up more often during these shows, especially when we had Una McCormick on the a couple weeks ago. You could have like chimed in on that one. I kept pounding on the bathroom door. Nobody would come and unlock it. <laughs> oh, I thought that was your dog. <laughs> oh, poor Matt had to work so hard to get that pounding out of the, the audio recording, too. If we, only we'd known it was you. <laughs> 200 episodes. I I remember being on the first one, but I, I hesitate to recall offhand what we talked about. I want to say it was Vanguard. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the... Uh, the was it Was it the last one or was it the novella? Yeah, it was the very last novella. The um, now I remember. Okay. In yeah. Tempest's Wake. 
for, right. for, for those who don't remember. That's like five years ago, then. Yeah, it's about that. Yeah, something like that. I'm looking uh, November 17th, 2012. You're right. Wow, that, hard to believe. That's that's awesome. Well, it's really great to have you back on the show. We always love having you on. <laughs> it's always fun to be here. Excellent. It's like I never left. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> now we know where the green room is. We know where to find you. And put a mini bar in it when you find it. <laughs> Speaking of mini bars, have you been to any bars lately? Yes, I have been. Uh, I think I own stock in the iBar at the Rio Hotel in Las Vegas. I actually uh, saw you sitting there at one point drinking. As, as most folks know, the big Star Trek convention was held there this past weekend as we record this. And uh, yeah, my accountant is like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, recompense or reimburse you for this. Yeah. I saw you sitting there with Kevin Dilmore and David Mack. So do you guys cause, you know, trouble in the I bar or you be, or do you guys behave together? I am happy to report that no one went to the emergency room or jail or contingent, at least this time. So, you know, it was a good weekend. And even if they did, you know what they say. You, you can't talk about that. What happens there stays there, right? You know, but, you know, you get fingerprinted and stuff. So, you know, it, uh, it didn't happen. But you visit <laughs> other locations. You weren't just at the I bar. No, we were. Yeah. We, yeah. We went to the other bar, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there were, what, like three or four bars in that hotel four, or four or five. I can honestly say I've never been to all of them. I've usually I've not been to the one that's on the roof and. There's one that's like right at the periphery of the casino that, that never did anything for me. Uh, it seems like during the convention, the the people who go to the con flock to the I bar and what's called the Masquerade Bar, which is sort of down in the Masquerade Village. And there's another bar at the far end of that village that sometimes is open. It's like it wasn't open the first couple nights we were there, but it was open the rest of the time. So we ended up wandering down there because it was relatively quiet. Uh, because during the except during the peak nights, you know, like the weekend and stuff itself, it was it was pretty rowdy in the I bar and the masquerade bar with the convention in full swing. Now I didn't know about the third one. I was down on the other end, but I was actually at Smashburger and I would get a shake every day. Yeah, Smash uh, Smashburger's up above the village bar, which is just a circular bar, you know, where you sit on the outside. Oh, that's near the Kiss stuff, right? Yeah, it's right before you get to the Kiss thing. Yeah, the yeah. Kiss, Kiss mini golf, boys and girls, you can really do it. Because <laughs> uh, Gene Simmons has never met a merchandising deal he could say no. To. So now you had probably one of the best introductions that you've ever had at a convention at this one. This is this is true. I can't so disagree with that. Tell us about that because you know I was there the first day and they were doing the discovery ones and it was there was four of them and the fourth one was about the books and comics with discovery and then like halfway through it these doors part open. And you emerged. So tell us why that happened. Well, um, the folks at CBS Licensing and uh, my editor, Pocketbooks, uh, wanted to make a announcement about the Star Trek Discovery novels uh, in the midst of this one panel. So everybody knew that Dave Mack was writing the first book in the series. That was announced last fall at Mission New York. And there's been speculation that there would be more than one novel and who would write that next novel and all that kind of thing. Um, I've had to keep my mouth shut about it pretty much since this time last year. <laughs> uh, I mean, I knew I was definitely writing the novel about this time last year when we were in Vegas for the 50th anniversary convention. And then even for a few months before that, um, there were discussions about my writing the second novel. 
Um, and I've been under an NDA for about a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. Um, so I had to keep my mouth shut while all the discovery news was coming out and people were speculating about what the books would do and what the comics would do and all that. I just sort of like, I don't hear anything. La 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 la. Um, yeah, because under threat of death, you know, I think Kirsten Beyer has snipers shadowing our movements no matter where we are so that we don't say anything. Yeah. We we've heard from David Mack about those snipers. Uh, he sees shadows across the street all the time. Yeah. You never see him coming. I mean, you can run, but you'll die tired. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So no, really it's been exciting. It's been, uh, it's been fun to watch, um, things come together. You know, I've had a unique, um, vantage point for the last year watching, watching the show, uh, gestate as the writers, uh, come up with the storylines and then and watching the actors get cast and hearing about the first days of shooting on set and not being able to say a single word about any of it. And in reality, I'm not really allowed to say much more than what I just said anyway. <laughs> so, um, right. So there isn't much to discuss at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they decided that they wanted me to come on stage and be the surprise extra announcement for the panel. So I, cause when I landed in Vegas, I was, t- I was told be available this afternoon at five 30, which is when the panel started. And I said, okay, I'm not on any scheduled things. And yeah, you are, but it's not an official. They actually purposely withheld my name from the program <laughs> so that it wouldn't spoil the surprise. Yeah. Well, I have I to tell you, to I, the I was surprised. I mean, I wasn't expecting that at all, of course, because I didn't know anything. But it was just like, you know, all of a sudden the doors part, like you come out of the holodeck. Right. And- yeah, they have <laughs> these holodeck doors there. So everybody, that's where all the guests come out, Dan, is they have a big stage and they have a, the holodeck doors and an archway. And all the guests who are whoever's the guest at that panel for that session comes through the doors. So it's a big old deal. Yeah. So that's the first time I've ever done that. Whereas first time I've ever done anything in the main events room at that convention. That's really cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Of course, I was only there for like the last, what, five or 10 minutes of the convention or the panel. The panel, right. Yeah. And so, and I think they mentioned that it's the book is scheduled to come out early 2018. Yeah, they don't have a set date just yet, um, but they're, they're eyeballing early 2018, so maybe the first quarter. Um, it's it's all going to be hinging on various factors, including my delivering the revised manuscript. But it's the only thing I can say about the book is that it is a prequel to the actual series. It takes place 10 years before the events of what you will see beginning with the first episode. Uh, so, you know, I have certain characters that I've focused on and the plot line of my story, cause I can, I can say this cause they said it in Vegas. Um, the plot line of my story does involve a canon event from the prime timeline. So for all the people who keep holding out thinking this is a reboot or it's not the prime timeline is absolutely neck deep in the prime timeline. Excellent. I mean, let the speculation begin about what that could be. So oh, we, really some of us were already doing that. Some of us yeah, were I'm already sure. speculating, and I think we figured it out, but I'm not going to well, say. Well, what's the theories? Not that okay. I'll say anything one way or the other, but um, well, so, what the speculation involves, because I haven't, I haven't read into any of that. So we heard that the Discovery TV series starts 10 years prior to Kirk's mission on the Enterprise. So that puts it you know, 2255, 56-ish. But at some point during the convention, I think maybe David Mack said it, but someone said that his novel takes place a year prior to Discovery TV series, putting it in 2255, between the cage 
and the premiere episode Discovery. So we're like, well, the cage is 2254. And so if this is a, so yeah, that put David's book 2255, Discovering 2256. So 10 years prior to the series and David's book, your book would fall 2245, 46. And we thought, well, in 45 is apparently when the Enterprise was launched. NCC 1701. And that's all, all I've got to say. These are all true statements. I mean, <laughs> those, those, are all, those are all verifiable statements from various sources. So good job. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my theory. I'm always wrong, though. I'm always wrong. So I'm just going to know. So anyway. But yeah, so there was some good stuff in there. So we got your novel coming out. Uh, we also got announcements that it sounds like we're getting closer to a deal between Simon Schuster and CBS so we can continue the books next year. That was mentioned and including going into, the, we can play in the Kelvin timeline eventually, as they mentioned also. That's, yeah. And actually, I, that first I heard about that was while sitting at that panel. That was, that was the first oh, wow. time that had ever been said out loud uh ed ed kind of dropped a little mini bomb there and then left it hanging we're all like after the panel going what the hell dude where was that from and so all you've been carrying out your pocket <laughs> so um naturally that generated a flurry of discussions uh later that evening uh, over dinner and uh at the bar and all that because um as it happened i, I I can probably say this because I'm not spoiling anything. One of the things that's been on my mind and on the minds of readers and fans and everything is, is what to do when the prime timeline hits the magic year of 2287 and the events of the first rebooted Star Trek movie. Um, there's two ways. There's two things to think about. It's number one, are we ever going to get a chance to play with the JJ version of the crew? Um, in their prime without all the backstory and the canon to worry about. And I've been wanting to do that since 2009. <laughs> then, then there's the other part of the, of the equation, which is, you know, the Romulus explodes and then Spot goes back in time and generate and, and creates, helps to create the alternate timeline. So what happens after that? You know, what happens after Spock disappears down the rabbit hole? Um, what is left? What happens to Romulus? What happens to the Romulus empire? What, you know, what, what's the response? Uh, by anybody who's left, you know, to, to witness it, and of course, all the story possibilities that can come from that. So, once that bomb got dropped, and then was, you know, I think Ed clarified it a little bit on Friday at another panel. Um, you know, that generated a whole flurry of discussions between those of us who were there that could bend his ear and trap him in a corner and stuff. And um, so, yeah, I'm ex I'm excited by the idea. It's not it's not set in stone. I mean, it's not it's one of the things that's on the table. We haven't been given any marching orders yet. Um, we're still waiting, but it's definitely a topic that will be revisited because a lot of us are kind of excited by the possibilities. It springs. Yeah. So nothing immediate. So when there are plans, it could be you know months a year or something before we see yeah anything. because i mean you know it's particularly with the prime timeline and the aftermath of romulus's destruction it's like you know that's it's it's not i mean to be to be honest i had been drafting an email that i was going to send to uh, my editor ed schlesinger and margaret clark about hey what are we going to do about 2287 we can't keep popping the clutch in 2386 forever we have to do something and we can't ignore it and we can't just sort of give it a hoodwink and a nod you know and pretend it didn't happen otherwise Fans will be disappointed. They'll be angry. They'll will be a joke. Um, that's my personal opinion. I don't speak for Pocketbooks or CBS or anybody. Um, 
so I'm, you know, I was kind of starting to set up my, my, my pitch for how we can deal with this. Uh, you know, you know, originally it was going to be in a contained, you know, like, can I do it as, can we do it in a self-contained thing that's minimal impact to the, to the, to the JJ films and that sort of thing. Um, and then all of a sudden Ed, you know, drops that bomb at the panel and I just sort of flush that email going, okay, we're, we're wide open now. We can talk about all sorts of stuff and not have to hedge our bets or be, you know, tiptoe around the minefield or anything. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's, uh, you know, cause I've had a number of ideas percolating for a while about what to do when we hit that point in the calendar. Oh, that that's exciting. I mean, even more than playing around in the JJ verse to me, that's, that's the huge thing I'm really excited about is that 2387 question. Yeah, there's a lot. To, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of ideas that, you know, got thrown around and there was a lot more that got thrown around in Vegas. I mean, uh, I think I talked fast enough. My tongue snapped off its roller. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's just as, as for the storytelling possibilities, it's exciting because it's, you know, we've, we've been given up until this point, we just had to sort of pretend it didn't happen and we've been able to get away with it for a while, but you know, that's a, the shelf date on that kind of thing is very limited. At some point we're going to have to do something. So I was worried about how that would affect the line and how that would affect, you know, the way the readers take us as far as, you know, these guys are treating it seriously. We're treating it right. That kind of thing. So I'm happy about it. I like the idea on both sides because, again, I, I, I would want to deal with the with that question for the prime timeline. But I also really like the idea of taking the characters when they're in their prime and without all the baggage and just having some fun with that and seeing what we can build in that world. Assuming, you know, assuming we get the same kind of freedom we get with the regular novels. I, I'm a little disappointed because that Thursday panel where that was announced, I was standing third in line, and my question was, are we going to be able to play in the Kelvin timeline at some point? And then, of course, it was already answered before that, so I sat down, but I was like, oh, I could have taken credit for bringing that out of Ed, but I can't now. <laughs> you're talking about, oh, you're talking about the other panel, the one that came, was it Thursday or Friday? The, Thursday. the one where we had, where it was just, where it was us and Rob Perlman and Ethan Siegel? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It was Thursday, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. it was that one. Yeah, so you know, it's definitely exciting. Um, and it, and like you know, as I said, I've I've had a couple of ideas on what to do in my little file of ideas for a few years now. So some of them may work, some of them may not work. Um, doesn't really matter. It's just something that you know I've had. And I can't be the only one. I don't. I can't. I can't claim to be the only one. I, I would. I would imagine all the other writers who are interested in writing in that time frame have ideas as well. Well, guess what? I have some ideas too. I'll share them. With <laughs> you. Sure you do, but I mean, you know, it affects multiple, it doesn't, you know, it can affect multiple books across the different series. I mean, it's everybody's got a piece of that pie or everybody can, it can be looked at from different angles. So um, it's exciting. Now, whether that generates a massive 10 book mini series or whatever, I, I have no idea. That's, that's too far down the road to even speculate. Well, for me, I mean, the, the books have been like, the biggest source of new Star Trek for me for the last however many years. And just the idea that it would just stop at a certain point or stall has always been just in the back of my mind and, and something I'm really scared of. And then plus this whole other side of the Star Trek universe to get to play in too. Like I, I can't, I can't say that I'm not excited about all of that. That's really cool. Well, we, and we don't need to stay on this for the whole episode, but you know, one thing, you know, it really, <laughs> expands things out to the point that you could actually write a discovery novel that takes place in the Kelvin timeline, meaning it's the Kelvin version of discovery, right? Right. Cause this is posing theory. We could do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Sky's the limit. Sky's the limit. Um, yeah, I mean, don't <laughs> slow your roll, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we've got we've got a few we've got a few things we have to do before we can get to that point. I don't expect that. So, <laughs> yeah, I was and I was I was conscious of the of the calendar and potentially stalling and 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 things too, which is one of the reasons why I had originally sent the Enterprise or asked to send the Enterprise out to an area where they could do exploration missions. And, you know, the, the calendar could be kind of fluid at that point. You don't necessarily have to lock dates down. You know, you can you can let things you can fudge things a little bit. But then, you know, it's like and it's really nobody's fault. It's just one of those funny things that happens when you got multiple people working on multiple projects. You know, every time I would write a next generation novel, Sean Jackson Miller would write another epic thing that would require the <laughs> use of the Enterprise, even though I've got them eight weeks away at maximum warp, you know. And so, you know, drag them back to the Alpha Quadrant. So that's, you know, two months. And then they had to go back out and resume their exploration missions with another two months. I'm like, dude, the calendar. <laughs> so. And he's like, that's your problem, not mine. Exactly. Right. It's, like I said, it's not. It's, I mean, I tease him about it, but, you know, that's just the way that goes. And, you know, I suppose we could probably relax a little bit as far as monitoring these things as fans. It's like, it's really not that big a deal. We can get by. We'll figure it out. Um. So for for everybody who likes to clock the nanoseconds that have, that elapsed during a five year mission and how to fit everything in, it's like take a breath. It's all going to be okay. We'll figure it out. So we'll, we'll introduce a temporal anomaly or something if we have to. Exactly. So, yeah. Star Trek's good about. Yeah, we'll get them stuck in another Typhon expanse or something, and they can just hang out for a bit. Yeah. So, exactly. Figure Perfect. something out. But yeah, it's exciting. It's fun. It's it's it definitely jazzed me during several conversations with Ed over that weekend. Okay. Well, I think we have some other news, though, right, Dan, besides Discovery? Yeah, one thing, so it's our 200th episode, as you know, and one thing I did was I kind of went back over the schedule from the last few years to see if there was any, you know, big book releases that we'd kind of missed or not really done anything with. There's actually a book that came out in 2016, and we somehow missed this. And so I thought we'd do a really quick little uh, thing with it. And I'm going to apologize in advance. This might be really silly. It might be ridiculous. Oh, but it I think will it could... be. Oh, yeah. But I think it'll be a little fun. So 2016, a book came out called Star Trek Mad Libs. So I thought that we'd, <laughs> you know, very important to the ongoing Star Trek literature line here. I use know? those to generate plot ideas. We talked about <laughs> Excellent. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you guys uh, for some various words, and we're going to try one of these out. So, um, Dayton, I'm going to ask you for a place. A place. Does it have to be any place? I mean, are you looking for it just this place, doesn't it? Any place. Yep. Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. Let's just keep it on topic. All right. Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. So if... You hear a pause. That's me writing it in furiously. And then, uh, Bruce, how about a noun? What have you got for a noun? Okay, I'm going to say uh, uh, I'm got uh, a noun. I'm going to say transporter. Okay, transporter. Perfect. And Dayton, I need a silly word. That is all the direction I'm given here. Just a <laughs> silly word. <laughs> a silly word. Poppycock. Poppycock. Perfect. And Bruce, how about a number? Any number? 47. Of course, it's got to be 47. And I uh, need a verb. Who wants to throw me a verb? 
uh, running or whichever, whichever tense you need of that. I've, I've altered it accordingly. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Bruce, how about a plural noun? Ferengis. Ferengis. Perfect. And Dayton, I'll need another noun from you. Coconuts. <laughs> Coconuts. Perfect. You've asked for it. This is your game. Sorry, man. I'm just rolling. <laughs> and, uh, wow, lots of nouns here. Bruce, another pr- plural noun from you. Pickles. <laughs> this is starting Pickles. to sound like a pregnancy craving. <laughs> and I need an animal. Aardvark. Aardvark. Excellent. And the last one, I need an adjective. Salty. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here we go. Here's our creation. This is titled The Most Famous Intro Ever. So here we go. Wrigley's Pleasure Planet, the final transporter. These are the voyages of the starship Poppycock. Its 47-year mission to run strange new Ferengis, to seek out new coconuts and new pickles, <laughs> to boldly go where no aardvark has gone before. Yes. And then cue salty music. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, I was looking, I was looking through, I was trying to find it while you were doing this. Um, a, a while back, I posted something on Trek BBS about similar to Mad Libs. It was what I called the, the definitive wannabe Trek writers generic plot submission form. <laughs> and basically it reads, I got my glasses here. So like, the, you know, like, you know, like you read the back cover of the book and it gives you the, the summer, you know, it gives you the, the teaser about what the book's about. Mm-hmm. That's basically what I wrote, but I left it with all the blanks that you have to insert kind of like Mad Libs. So it's like, while well, on route to insert destination here, captain insert captain's name here, and the crew of the insert ship's name here, encounter a mysterious insert mysterious thing here, <laughs> which threatens to insert threatening action here, and thereby insert repercussion one here, while at the same time insert repercussion two here, throughout the insert <laughs> scope of repercussions here. Now insert captain's last name here, and insert generic spe- gender specific pronoun here. Crew must solve the escalating crisis before insert looming deadline kind of thing here. There you go. <laughs> Fill in all the blanks and submit that, and bam, you have a you have a novel submission going to pocketbooks. That's perfect. That sounds. Exactly. To my knowledge, this has <laughs> never actually been successful. It sounds like every other novel, though. It does, doesn't it? Describe a horror, <laughs> describe a, ba- a novel badly or something. Perfect. Well, let's uh, let's get to the feature now. We're going to be talking, of course, about your latest book, the Klingon Empire Travel Guide. So, meet us all on the other side of the page. Before we go on to the feature, now that we've had fun with our Mad Libs, I uh, just want to mention everyone to stay tuned after the feature because we have some other Trek FM hosts that send us messages, and we're going to play those at the end of the show. So stay tuned after the feature. And today's feature, of course, involves Dayton himself. And, uh, oh, but by the way, just to let you know, some of the Trek FM people, I'm going to give you a little hint. Some are from Saturday Morning Trek. Some are from Earl Grey. Some are from The Edge, Warp 5. Little hints. Anyway, today's feature is the Klingon Empire. It's the Hidden Universe Travel Guide for that. So, Dan, are you ready to go into the feature? Absolutely. So having Dayton on today, of course, isn't just a fortunate happenstance. We're actually here to talk about the Hidden Universe Travel Guide, Star Trek, the Klingon Empire. And to start out, I have to say, I 
loved this book. I'm going to say that right up front. The Vulcan Travel Guide last year was an amazing piece of work and a lot of fun to read. And the follow-up here, The Klingon Empire, is as good, if not better. I really, really enjoyed this one. So Dayton, first of all, thanks for coming on and, and talking about this book. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always Excellent. fun talking to you guys. Well, it's always fun to have you on for sure. Well, the first thing that I kind of wanted to bring up was, you know, travel guides have kind of a very specific format and a very specific layout. And this has just captured it perfectly. Like seeing this sitting on a coffee table and picking it up, you wouldn't necessarily know right away unless you, you know, looked really closely at the pictures and stuff that it wasn't an actual travel guide. What was kind of the, what kind of went into creating that format and, and what kind of research went into getting this to come out looking and sounding just right? Well, I mean, first of all, it is an actual travel guide. It just is a travel guide to a place that doesn't exist. <laughs> so semantics, right? The idea was that it would resemble actual travel guides like you'd go and get at the bookstore when you're preparing to go on a vacation. So, you know, uh, Frommers or um, Lonely Planet, those, those those types of books, you know, where they, they go in detail about a particular destination. Uh, that was our point of departure. Uh, obviously, we couldn't replicate uh, such a book exactly because if you've seen one, you know how incredibly detailed and and com and just packed, jammed to the rafters with information they are. Uh, they're, I mean, they're hundreds of pages long. I mean, I've got one for Japan that I used as a sort of a inspirational tool that I could chalk my wheels on my truck with if I wanted to because it's that thick. Um, so, I mean, I use those as, as inspiration. I got ideas for, for, you know, a format because for the, for the Vulcan guide, I had to figure it all out from scratch. So I had to, I had to determine a template or a format or a structure to the book, uh, work out the different categories. And then once I started getting to the nitty gritty, you know, figure out information about different places to fill those sections and make it interesting. And, you know, the re the source material being the films, the television series and various other uh, publications provided me with a good bit of information, but you know, at the end, I still had to make up a lot of stuff, particularly when it came to things like restaurants and points of interest and where to stay and that kind of thing. I mean, that's got to be pretty hard, though, because I mean, you come up with a lot of restaurants and a lot of places to stay. Are any of those based on real life places you've been where you've just kind of tweaked it? Yeah, there's there's a few places that have, uh, if they're not outright inspired by something, then they they um, they are, they're an amalgam, you know, of a couple of different places. Like, um, there's a restaurant chain called Dick's last resort. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, but it's, you know, the waiters, the, the, the gimmick there is that the servers and the staff are rude to the customers. So obviously that sounds like something you'd find on a Klingon homeworld. Um, so things like that. And then of course there's little in gags like, you know, Hey, Quark's has a restaurant chain on, or has a chain, you know, a franchise on, the Klingon homeworld, the same way he does on Vulcan, that you know the, 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 that crafty guy. So you know, there's a lot of little in jokes and Easter eggs and uh, plays on words. Uh, I think in the Vulcan guy, I had something called Alcona's Outrageous Emporium. You know, things like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, and you can only do that sparingly. You can't that can't drive the book. But if I've got enough solid information in there, and I'm actually you know in the world and I'm and I'm taking it seriously and not breaking character, then I can get away with a couple of jokes like that. But 
Um, the whole book is not meant that way. Yeah, it's not a joke book. It's not just a, mm-hmm. I mean, there's funny elements, and like you said, Easter eggs to it. But I mean, there really is sections in here that gives you some of the history of the Klingons and Kronos and even their relationship with the Federation. And a lot of that is based on information that we have available in other resources. My my direction from my editor and from CBS licensing, because it was it was CBS licensing that recommended the idea of this travel guide series to the publisher inside editions and recommended me as the writer. They said, you know, don't make it a reference book like the encyclopedia. Don't make it like a role playing game supplement. Have some fun with the format. Embrace whimsy when you can and when it's appropriate. Don't just make it a distillation of canon facts. Have some fun with it. Go to the other resources. Make things up. You know, push. If you, if you think you're about to step over the line, go ahead and take the step and we'll let you know if you've gone too far. So I was given a tremendous amount of latitude uh, with what I could do. Uh, so there's, but the idea is not, is not that it's a distillation of facts from other resources. I definitely picked and, you know, I picked and chose what I wanted to include from various sources. Uh, I may, while overlooking others or just not, not just disregarding them, but just not choosing to include them, um, you know, so folks who read novels, folks who play the role-playing games, pl- folks who have other uh, deep role resources because they're hardcore fans, they might pick up an Easter egg here or there. But as a package, I'm hoping that the whole thing is presentable enough that a casual Trek fan or a casual reader even could just pick it up and have fun with it. Yeah, there definitely are. And and we'll get into some of the, the really deep uh, references that you make here that I just absolutely loved. But yeah, the the one thing that you brought up quarks and just as an example, I loved that little bit about it because it, it felt like somebody's taken the name and, and kind of done their own thing with it on the Klingon homeworld. It wasn't just, you know, quark do it, you know, putting a franchise there. And that, that just felt so real to me because, you know, living in South Korea for two years, you know, somebody suggested I go to the, the, the Hooters in Seoul. <laughs> and it is not a Hooters. <laughs> <laughs> on this side of the ocean it's you know somebody's taken that name and done their own right thing well i mean they've it. bought the franchise rights so they can use the name and the and the, the you know the, the 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 logos and the other elements that 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 form that brand identity and you know so they pay a fee to the to the people who actually own hooters and all that and then they're basically left alone to do things largely autonomously you know as long as they don't do anything that that makes the band the brand look bad um, so that's how, how I looked at the, the Quark's franchise is Quark has taken the franchise fee from whoever and he's not getting too wrapped around the axle about the specifics of a particular location, particularly something like the Klingon homeworld. So I thought that was funny. I might be the only one who thought that was funny, but I thought it was funny. Yeah, no, it was perfect. And like stuff like that just lends a real sense of, of reality to this. It was funny like, because I had it in there. I had it in the, in, in my first draft of the manuscript, I, I had, the description for quarks and it was my in joke that it was going to be exactly like it read in the Vulcan book. Um, but my editor didn't go for that. And he said, no, go ahead and try to cling on it up a little bit. And I said, okay. So, so that's where I got the idea of it. You know, instead of just being quark dropping restaurants on different plants, it's okay. What happens if, you know, Ed, the Klingon decides he wants to franchise quarks uh, or buy into the quarks franchise. So what would he do with it? And so uh, that's where that idea came from because I wanted to keep the gag, but, 
I, I you know I wanted to, to to alleviate my editor's concern that I wasn't just copying and pasting stuff from the other manuscript. Well, you know, it just makes me wonder what you could get away with because I don't know how much your editor knows about Star Trek, and so did he have to go or he or she go have to go and redo research on what you're saying there? I mean, he's 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 a fan. He's he's versed somewhat in some of the lore, but he's not a hardcore Star Trek fan. Um, so, and that actually was a good thing, uh, because he was able to identify things to me that didn't work for him or he just like, I don't get the reference. Um, and I said, okay, I either need to pull back a little bit and either do a better job of conveying it or, you know, it's too inside baseball and I need to drop it or, or just rework it. So that's not, instead, I'm not trying so hard to make the, the Trek connection or the joke or the, or the, or the tie to that obscure reference. So that was a good thing. I, I, I welcome that because, you know, when you are hardcore and you do do this stuff all the time and you, you, you kind of live and breathe it, you tend to forget that it's not always approachable or accessible to normal people. <laughs> so the mundanes we like to call them. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, regular people, people who aren't screwed up in the head like Trek writers are. So um, that was a good thing. I, I welcome that. And, and I was more aware of it the first time with the Vulcan book and I anticipated it more with the Klingon book, but I, he's, I still, you know, Every once in a while, he'd come back and go, no, nah, I don't get that one. What are you talking about? And even after I explain it, nah, it doesn't work for me. You know, try that again. And that's the way that goes. Excellent. Well, we, we meant, as we mentioned, there are a lot of references in this book. And one of the great joys of having one of the novel writers do this book is you get to draw on a lot of, uh, you know, stuff that's not canon, but stuff that the novel readers would definitely recognize as coming from books and that sort of thing. So, for example, uh, Keith DeCandido's Klingon Art of War, I, I loved a lot of the references to that. But to me, my, my absolute favorite thing in this book, and when I stumbled across it, and, and the multiple references to it, was to John M. Ford's The Final Reflection, which is one of the best early Star Trek novels, in my opinion. And this uh, a lot of this book is almost like a love letter to that book, which really made me smile. No, oh, I'm a huge fan of that novel, and you know it's it's rightly regarded as one of the best of the early Star Trek novels, and you could even argue it's one of the best Star Trek novels, period. Um, and I wouldn't fight you on that. But it's also you know one of the great Klingon stories, uh, even though you know it was written at a time before Klingon backstory and culture and civilization was was remapped to a very large degree, you know, by beginning with Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, it's still just one of those little hallmarks of early Star Trek publishing that stands out from the rest of the titles. So, yeah, I wasn't going to do something like this and not make a nod or two to that book. The same way, you know, uh, Keith's Klingon Art of War is just a great, great reference uh, that he put a lot of work into. And so, I mean, some of those were easy calls like, oh, yeah, I got to make a reference to that. I mean, I when I get a when I get a job like this, I go to my bookshelf and I start pulling books off that I think might provide fodder. You know, so that paw got pretty deep pretty quick. But I mean, not just Ford's work on Final Reflection, but, you know, he also did a lot of the early work for this FASA Star Trek role-playing game. He helped flesh out a lot of the Klingon lore that's presented in that book, in that right, game. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of that also gets contradicted or, you know, gets overwritten later by Star Trek The Next Generation. But um, hardcore fans, longtime fans still love that stuff. And I certainly still have all the references on my shelf. So yeah, when when you get a job like this, it's like yeah, I'm gonna have a little fun with it, and they give you the they give you the freedom to have fun with it. Yeah, I'm gonna take advantage of that. 
uh, I figure I can always go too far <laughs> and they can pull me back a little bit versus going far enough, not going far enough, you know? Well, I'm going to have a little fun with this interview right now because I'm going to put you on the spot because I, this whole idea that you can borrow from the different movies and the TV shows and the novels and the games and comics and whatever, you know, you're working on a discovery novel and I know the Klingons play a, a big part in the discovery novels and you kind of know what's going on in there. So did you happen to borrow anything from that series that you put in there that none of us would even know about until the series came out? Maybe. Okay. Dan, do you have a question? <laughs> that was the Dang. answer I wanted to hear. <laughs> good question. <laughs> That's all. And good answer. Well, wait, wait, he's got, he's got a backpedal. Come on. To be, no, no, no. To be fair, <laughs> I wrote the first draft of this back in the spring of 2016. Uh, I was working on revisions to this manuscript even before the Vulcan Guide came out. Wow. Uh, I actually had this with me while I was taking a vacation cruise with my family last summer. Um, so well before they started fleshing out a lot of stuff for Discovery. and But I did have conversations with uh, Kirsten Beyer in particular asking, hey, what are you guys going to do with the Klingons that might impact what I'm doing with this? And so I'll let you guys figure out what, if anything, uh, might be a, an advanced Easter egg inside waiting for you. Ooh, and that's a challenge. I'm definitely going to look for that. And then the thing to do is after the series runs, we should go back and kind of reread things and see if we pick something up. Well, I certainly encourage you to reread it. Sure. Man, I'm now I'm really curious. Okay. I, I'm going to hunt for that. <laughs> One thing I, I also kind of wanted to bring up was uh, I'm, I'm assuming the artist is the same as as in the Vulcan Guide. Yes, there were two artists, uh, Livio oh. Ramelli and Peter Markowski. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, Peter did a lot of the the big, broad, like cityscape type paintings, or or you know establishing shots. I like to call them when you get to each new section. Uh, that's largely his work, and Livio did the maps. And a lot of the little drawings that accompany individual entries in the book. So, yes, I was thrilled when I found out that both of them were available to do this book because I think they really did a bang up job with the Vulcan Guide. They really succeeded in giving it its own unique look, and it, the you know their art really pops off the page. And it to me, it looks cooler, way cooler than it would have looked if we just gone with set photography or publicity photos or screen caps or even artwork that we've seen in other places. Every, almost every single piece of art in both of these books was made for the book. Uh, there might be a couple of paintings or drawings that take inspiration from something we're familiar with, but for the, by and large, it's all original work for the, for these two, for these two books. And I take my hat off to both of those gents because I really think they did a great job on both books. Yeah, definitely. And it really does add a lot to the book because you, you know, you pause on, you know, each splash page when you're getting to a new chapter and really investigating all the tiny details and stuff. And then those smaller pictures that accompany various entries, some of those works are just incredible. Like, like on first glance, a lot of them seem really simple, but, you know, looking, there's so much great detail. Um, one of my favorites is uh, an entry for the first city, and it's called the Hall of Warriors. And basically, it's a it's a it's a it's a hall that commemorates non Klingons who have had an impact on Klingon society. 
Klingon politics or Klingon civilization. And it's basically a, a statue of Picard standing next to a statue of a Klingon. And it's it's a fairly simple work compared to some of the other pieces that are in the book, but it's one of my favorites because of the way he did it. I'm like, that's exactly, almost exactly how I pictured it when I was writing the entry. Um, right. Yeah, I was, I was going to bring that one up. I didn't give a lot of specific direction. I just, what, what I learned from writing the Vulcan book, um, because it was my, the Vulcan book was my first time doing a book that's, it was very art heavy, you know, where there'd be a very large effort made by graphic designers and art directors and artists to, to liven up my text. I never had done it. I'd never done anything like that before. So I, I had to learn that process kind of on the fly. And so the lessons I took from the first book were when I was writing the, the entries for this book is, you know, I'd, I'd always make sure to, to pick out or to highlight something in particular that the, that one of the artists could, you know, latch onto in the description and go, okay, that's what my drawing is going to be about instead of, because of the, you know, they were always asking me for the first book, what do you think we should put here? What, what makes a good representation of this thing? And I realized I could save everybody a lot of headaches if I, if I included some sort of prompt, you know, that would let the artist have fun with it. You know, and plus I was tighter with my writing. I think the second for the second time around, uh, because I was more conscious of how it would look on the finished page, how it would look in relation to the art. So I think you know, the, I hopefully took some lessons away from the first book and and improved how the second book got executed. So what I did with the Vulcan book is I would read it just a few pages a night before I'd go to bed. I have it sitting on my nightstand, and now I'm doing the same with the Klingon book. And I haven't finished reading it. I've you know read a good piece of it, but you know, what I liked about the Vulcan one and what I'm picking up from the Klingon one is it's it's the only books that I've read so far that really makes it feel like I've been to the planets. Like when I read the Vulcan book, I feel like I have a great understanding of all the different places. It, you know, because sometimes when you watch Star Trek and you read stuff, it's it seems like everybody's in one place on a planet. But this makes the planet feel vast. Like, you know, oh, there's a region over here and it's this way and this region's different there. And, and I really love the scope of that. I mean, it's really got to take you a long time to put all that together. You have just hit on what the biggest challenge was for creating both of these books. Because in both cases, once you get past the capital city and a couple of other offside ref- you know, offhand references that various characters make about this or that place on their home planet, that's it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's that's. I mean, everybody knows about you know Vulcan's capital city, Shikar, but you know the other places, not so much. Uh, same thing with the first city and some other places. You know, it's like once you get past the places where the characters beam down for the adventure. That's pretty much it. Um, thankfully, you know, Star Trek has a long history of ancillary material, materials uh, that allow me to to go in and start making notes and going, okay, this this reference from the role playing game, this reference from this novel, um, and begin to flesh out, uh, uh, you know, an outline that we can put meat on. Uh, and then once I had an area defined, you know, I'm like, okay, now what kind of stuff would you find in a place like this? You know, the restaurants would be different than they would be in a capital city. Uh, the lodging arrangements would be much different or much more limited than they would be in a large city. Uh, so you can have some fun with that. You know, it's like, okay, if you want to venture away from the Megan city on Klingon homeworld, you better like sleeping on the ground or sleeping on a rock or sleeping on a shelf. Cause there are no sleep number mattresses outside of the first city. So things like that. I mean, it was just, you know, that's what got me going was once you get past the, those episodes that, that even bothered to reference a particular place or a thing or you know some point of interest on the planet, or the or in this case the empire. 
the rest of it's on me. Uh, I have to figure it out. So uh, that, that was the big challenge. Well, I love where you take some of it. Like, for example, Tong Vei, I think, is kind of a, it, it's a plot point in Deep Space Nine that Worf played this holodeck program and ordered the murder of the entire city. And the fact that you would turn that into like an historical marker that this thing happened, like stuff like that, it just, it makes it feel so real. And I have to say, I almost, like when I finished reading this whole thing, I almost had a feeling of profound sadness because I wanted to pl- I wanted to plan a vacation there, you know, <laughs> I wanted to go and I'm like, oh, I can't really, it, it doesn't actually exist, but you know, it may as well, you, you've made it come to life in this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was fun. Particularly, I actually, the Tong Bay was one of my favorite uh, entries to write, even though it was, it ends up being one of the shorter ones because I, I mean, my military background and my, my, my interest in military history, I sort of gravitated to those types of entries. And I also had to be careful not to overdo it, you know, um, not, you know, in fact, that was a note that I got from my editor was like, you know, why is everybody talking about Kalos all the time or, or just like the Vulcan? But why does everybody talk about Surak all the time? I'm like, it's like going to the Vatican and not mentioning God. You know, it's it's going to come up uh, when you go to a monastery on Vulcan. You're going to talk about Surak when you go to a military thing or a memorial or something that deals delves deeply into Klingon history. Kalos's name is going to come up. That's just the way it happens. Um, but then, you know, still, that doesn't, you know, I he challenged me to find alternatives. Um, so like the whole backstory about the battle at Tong Bay is fleshed out a little bit from there. And a couple of the other battles that you read about at different points on the planet where there are markers or some other reference to that. Uh, that's where a lot of that came from was just, you know, uh, my editor not allowing me to get away with the easy stuff. I also really liked how, you know, reading this and we talked a little bit about this, but you learn a lot about the history of the Klingon homeworld and you've kind of laid it out in a way that makes sense and you know something that i'm sure a lot of writers really have to uh learn how to do and and that's to create a fictional history of this place and the kind of growth of the klingon homeworld and how they spread out and i i have to admit i never ever thought about that as like you know this civilization where would it have arisen where would they go what cities would come up and why would those cities exist and it it just I know I've said this a lot, but it really lends a, a real feeling of reality to this book. You're ready to go, aren't you? You're ready to go. You're ready to get. You're ready to take your bags and go, aren't you? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm. I'm. I kind of have to hold myself back from inquiring what kind of you know uh, uh, vaccinations I need before I go to the Klingon homeworld. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I I don't know if I want to go there or. Or Vulcan. I don't know which one I like the best yet, but um, I mean, Vulcan definitely seems safer and seems more like an easier vacation than Kronos. So, Dayton, between the two books, what location, not just Klingon, not just Kronos or Vulcan or whatever, but just a specific location that you would choose out of the two that you would take your vacation on? I think I would go to the one on Vulcan where, you know, basically the Vulcan version of Spring Break takes place, the lake. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take lots of sunscreen for that too. Like the beach volleyball, you know. Vulcans apparently like beach volleyball, so maybe we'll watch that tournament on on ESPN eight, the Ocho. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a hard time picturing Klingons playing in volley. I mean, Vulcans playing volleyball. <laughs> I'm 
I'm sure they play it quite logically. Ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> ta, I had to get that one out of the way. Absolutely. And and finally, just another th- aspect of this book that I just loved was the kind of preparing to go section because every travel guide has that, like, what do you need to know as far as behavior and the culture and that sort of thing. And uh, I couldn't help but think that, you know, the fictional writers of this book were kind of trying to pull one over on me that this vacation would be a lot of fun and, you know, I wouldn't be suffering (laughs) that sort of thing. But I feel like this is almost the kind of vacation book that you'd get there and you'd be like, wow, there's a lot more bloodletting than I was expecting. They sure do fight a lot around here. Um, (laughs) That's actually, that, that was sort of what I had in mind when they came to me, right? We were a few weeks out from the novels release or from the book's release. And I got asked to write a blog entry for inside editions website. You know, they have a blog going on and they wanted something to tie into the release of the book. And I said, well, what about if I write it, you know, in character, like the people who wrote the travel guide and I offer tips on something, you know? So we, we, we brainstormed a few ideas and, and finally came up with, you know, 10 things that Klingons are tired of hearing from tourists, basically like a BuzzFeed article. You know, we started like it was going to be a, so I was, you know, my original idea was it was going to be like a BuzzFeed article. So I'd have like little gif gifs in there, you know, like the roll eyes icon and that kind of thing, or, or Worf doing a face palm or something. So, so they eventually we went with something a little bit more, I guess traditional is the right word, but just a basic, Hey, you know, if you're going to go to the Klingon homeworld, don't ask the locals questions like this. And so we came up, I had 10 and they trimmed it to seven for space. So that's, that was, that was a lot of fun because we got to basically extend the, the, the joke, so to speak a little bit more right as the book was coming out. Yeah. We read some of that, uh, on a previous episode. I don't, I don't know if we covered all seven, but we did highlight a few of those. And so, they, yeah, they, they were, they were pretty funny. I also like in the book about, you know, advising you, you probably do not want to headbutt with a Klingon when you're, yeah, that's <laughs> probably not something you want to do. Uh, that's a pro tip. Don't do that. Um, don't take their weapon. Don't try to take their, don't, don't try to take their knife. Don't, don't try to headbutt them and, you know, try not to insult their entire family lineage. And, and a lot of that, there's, I think there are several tips in there that I, there's an episode of DS9, remember Apocalypse Rising, where they all go undercover as Klingons? Right. Yeah. Don't, don't hit the Klingon with an open palm kind of thing. Trying to explain the intricacies of Klingon etiquette. You know, did you mean to insult my entire family line by hitting me with an open hand? You know, that kind of thing. And so I just basically watched that scene and jotted down all the things that Worf gigs everybody on. And then came up with a list of things to put in the book. Like, here's a, here's a PSA on how to get around and not kill, get yourself killed. That was, that was part of the fun. Because, I mean, it's not meant to be a poke at Star Trek. I'm not laughing at Star Trek. I'm not, you know, I'm not above it all. I'm not superior to it. But there's a lot of intrinsic humor in Star Trek that, you know, when you pull back and look at it, it really does make you laugh uh, heartily. And stuff like that is, is an example. And so, so yeah, my, my attitude when writing these books is I'm not, I'm not poking fun. I'm not, I'm not uh, laughing at, I'm definitely laughing with. Excellent. And I mean, I think that really comes across and uh, yeah, that stuff I recognized immediately from that episode. Right. Exactly. And that was the idea is that the hardcore fan who gets it will, will laugh when they go, when they figure out where I brought that from. But the casual reader is just a list of things to do or not do, you know? Right. Um, so you get the payoff if you've been hanging around the whole time. I got to ask, um, Battlecruiser Vengeance, 
that that was from the final reflection, if I'm remembering correctly, right? Right. Okay. Um, I gotta I gotta ask like the the one section where they're talking about you know fans of this show you know will appreciate will they'll be asking you to pick up knickknacks and stuff. I was wondering if there was ever a thought to having a battle cruiser vengeance convention on Kronos. I, I I'm sure I thought of it like while I was trying to figure out how to word this passage, and I didn't know how far I wanted to go in the rabbit hole. And then uh, you know so I I wrote the one entry about battle cruiser vengeance sort of like a sidebar article and i left it and that was it that was all and i thought that would be it and then after my editor had read the first draft uh he came back and he said that the the, the thing i had at the very end the very last page uh he didn't like he said it, it's the wrong tone to end the book on i think i'd like something a little more upbeat even funny uh and we had had some kind of psa in the vulcan guide i'm i'm forgetting what it was um, maybe like tips for surviving on Vulcan's Forge or something. I forget if that was what the last page was. But he wanted something like that. And uh, I said, well, I've already used all the really good jokes you know, elsewhere in the manuscript. I'm, I'm kind of – I don't know if I can do it again without repeating myself. And then I hit on the idea of a full-page ad of some kind, like, a, like out of the back of a magazine. you know. And then it hit me, Battlecruiser Avenger the Experience. You know, basically like Star Trek, the experience of Vegas. So an interactive holographic environment with costume performers and immersive attractions and merchandise and restaurants and all of that, just like they had in Vegas, but within the Star Trek universe and aimed at Klingons. Can't fail, right? Um, so I pitched that idea, you know, really quickly over an email on a Thursday afternoon or whatever it was because he needed it. He needed whatever I was going to do. He needed it quickly. Um, so I pitched that idea and he said, that was brilliant. Go for it. So I fleshed out what became the last page of the, what is now the last page of the manuscript kind of on the fly, you know, necessity and desperation being the mother of invention. Awesome. And then, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it does strike the right note to end this on because I, I was grinning through that. That was excellent. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I cheated. I went straight to the back. (laughs) (laughs) The butler did it. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just now I'm I'm just you know picturing myself getting a little bit too drunk on blood wine at the tipsy targ and accidentally thinking I can headbutt a Klingon and yeah, well you know I'm, that'll go bad for you. So yeah, I'm really rethinking this vacation. I have re- to say, <laughs> I'm really liking this new side of you, Dan, that you're venturous like this and that you would want to go do that. <laughs> yeah, but only for a few minutes, and then then I do the headbutt thing and and. Yeah, that's that's not so good. Well, we'll we'll drag you out of the bar and put you back on your rock slab to take a nap on. <laughs> awesome! No, it's a, it'll be a really fancy place. It'll be metal. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, I, I I can't imagine you'll be able to answer this question fully, but I gotta ask: Are there any possible plans to do? something else in the travel guide area in star trek or um there hasn't been anything formal i mean we've kind of they're doing another hidden universe travel guide uh because the idea was that the hidden universe umbrella title would encompass travel guides across various licenses that insight uh has to publish you know books so there's been a marvel guide you know uh like marvel's guide to the cosmos or something and it's basically from the point of view of guardians of the galaxy characters and uh there's another one coming out i think 
next spring that's based on Supernatural, the television show. Um, so there'll be a travel guide to, I assume, places you know, visited by the characters in that show. Um, so that's the idea is that the conceit is that, you know, the same group of harried writers in a building somewhere send out people to various locations and pull back all the information and distill it down into a travel guide. Um, I don't know if there'll be another Star Trek one. Um, I'm told the Klingon one is selling really well. Uh, it's one of their top titles for the year. Um, oh, that's great news. That's awesome. Chris has his hands full with a number of projects at any one time. And I'm actually working on a couple of things for Insight that are not travel guide related. Um, so hopefully, you know, we'll circle back and either either I'll work for Chris on another Star Trek project of some kind or some other project. Or maybe we will revisit the idea of a travel guide. But that said, uh, you know, even a, even as a hardcore fan trying to appeal to a broad audience, you know, it's to me, the list of planets that are viable candidates for something like this, it starts to drop off pretty quickly. Um, you know, maybe Romulus uh, could could sustain its own book, uh, but other planets that are that are really not that well known to the mainstream folks, not sure that a whole book could be sustained like, you know, Ferenginar. Um, but we've talked about alternative ideas, like maybe we have one book that that covers multiple planets and you treat it like a cruise guy, like, you know, you're on a cruise to the different ports of call and you oh, do it yeah. that way. That's a good idea. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's, or, you know, worlds of the Federation or, you know, something like that, but it, it, you know, whatever, whatever it works, the, the, the obvious concern is that it has to have appeal to beyond just the hardcore fans. Uh, it definitely has to attract a more casual reader and, you know, somebody's grandma or mom who wants to buy that book for their Star Trek fan in the family at Christmas time. So, um, definitely had been, had the conversation, just don't know what we're going to do with it. Well, I can help you with some of that because if, if you need someone to go and visit Riza and write about it, I'm your man. I'll do yeah, that I've already, for you. I've already volunteered for that. I mean, oh, I've already, okay. I've already put myself up for that. Okay. And you know, I realize that rice is not a real planet, but the Bahamas seem pretty close. So <laughs> you know, if you send me to the Bahamas for a month, I could probably come up with a book and uh, they have yet to respond to that idea of mine. So I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> okay. we'll hold out hope for you there Dayton <laughs> you keep holding on dude excellent well you mentioned you've got some other stuff on the go for inside editions do you want to share you know kind of what you're working on um, in the Star Trek universe outside the Star Trek universe what should we be looking for uh, we know you've got your discovery novel coming up uh, in a few months and uh, what else can we uh, look forward to from Dayton Ward uh, I would love to tell you about the things I'm working on for Insight, but they've not been formally announced, so I can't say anything. Uh, I would Do love we to need tell like you about... uh, holodeck doors to open for you oh, to right. tell yeah, us? Yeah, really. Right yeah, everybody's going to push me through a door. Um, I have other projects for non-Star Trek tie-in work that I would love to talk to you about, but I can't. <laughs> um, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four. I have five different projects that are in various stages that have not been announced by their respective publishers. Um, and so I am basically waiting for the, for the green light to talk about all of them. Well, the, yeah. I'd like to tell you what I think about your Klingon travel guide, but I can't. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> what I can tell you is that, uh, I was just, we just recently published an anthology that came out last week. As a matter of fact, right as I was getting ready to go on the plane to Vegas, um, it's called maximum velocity, the best of full throttle space tales. And this is the 
best stories from the six book collection of anthologies called Full Throttle Space Tales that was published by a small publisher called Flying Pen Press back in the about, about a about a decade ago, give or take, depending on which book. And the five editors of the, of the six books, because one person edited two volumes, we all got together and we picked favorites from each of the other books and had a little hash out to determine the best representatives of all the six anthologies. And so this best of anthology with new cover art and everything was just published by Wordfire Press, which is the publishing company owned by noted science fiction and fantasy author Kevin J. Anderson, um, with whom I've worked before because he edited the Rush anthology that came out last year. So that's out now. It's all minty fresh. It's in an ebook and trade paperback format. And then the next thing for me is another anthology that I contributed to. It's uh, based on the Predator franchise called If It Bleeds, all new stories about the, about various predators at different points on in history on Earth. It's out from Titan Books in October. I'm not a big Predator fan, but I think I want to check that one out. That actually sounds interesting to me. Well, you know, I was really pleased with the Planet of the Apes anthology that Titan put out earlier this year. Yes. And I, that I had a story in, and I've been impressed with some of the other anthologies they put out for other licensed properties like X-Files and – I'm sorry, not X-Files, Aliens. Uh, X-Files was done by IDW. Um, so I'm, I was jazzed to be asked by the editor, Brian Thomas Schmidt. Um, I'm a big Predator fan from going back to the original movie. Um, can't really say a whole lot about the various stories, though I can say that mine is set in Vietnam in 1968. So do your Googling and your wiki, and you'll probably hone in on what I'm talking about. So, but uh, it's a lot. It was a lot of fun. It was fun to to change up and do something not, you know because I've been doing a lot of Star Trek in rapid succession. So it's always nice to do something like that to kind of shift gears before they pull me back in. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if people want to find you online, where would where will they be able to cyberstalk you? I am and forever remain at DaytonWar.com. Uh, that is my portal with to my social media platform. So you'll find my blog and links to my Facebook page and my Twitter feed and my Instagram page and uh, places like my my page at various publishers. And hopefully that's enough to tide you over. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much for being on for our, our 200th episode. I, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Yes. And I, I hope we get, you know, dozens, tons more books of yours to talk about for, you know, another 200 or however many, many more episodes. So, so. Well, that'd be okay. I like the money that comes with those. <laughs> so, you know, always like paying bills. That's always fun. Um, no, it's always, it's fun to be on. I don't, I've, I've not bothered to count how many times I've come on the show. Um, and I don't know if you guys are having a running account, like a running count of who's come on however many times. And if there's a limit, you know, like yeah, he's hit 10, so he's done. Um, <laughs> no, we haven't, we haven't done a limit yet. So we'll, we'll let you know if, if you reach that, if we do come up with a limit, we'll let you know. I've, I, I've <laughs> lost count. I don't know how many times I've been on, but it's been, I think with almost every new Star Trek release since you started. Isn't that yeah, right? Something I would like think so, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure you've gotten them, gotten them all. Yeah, so you're welcome back anytime. Just keep writing, and we'll have you on. We'll have you on when you have your Discovery novel come out and anything else after that. Well, hopefully Absolutely. by then I'll be able to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the secrecy going on here, the ninjas are lurking. I, can, I thought I saw one of them move. Um, the shadows moved over by my bathroom, so I think there might be a sniper in here waiting to see if I say Discovery too many times. Uh, 
I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been quiet about it, but I've been excited for a year watching this come together. I think folks, if they give it a chance, it's going to challenge their perceptions. Like the trailer says, it's going to challenge your expectations, but I really think it's going to be something special. It's definitely not the same kind of Star Trek that you've seen on TV before. It's definitely going to do something different and, and it's not mindless lens flares and all that stuff like people are worried about with the JJ movies. I really think it's its own thing. Uh, it's definitely got Star Trek DNA laced all through it. Um, I mean, just, it's been fun. It's been a privilege and it's been a lot of fun to watch it come together. I can't wait for everybody to see it. Awesome. I mean, yeah, if, if some Star Trek fans out there can get over their innate fear of change, it seems. Well, I mean, I, I like to think that it embraces, it, it seems like it struck a balance between traditional Star Trek values in terms of storytelling, what you expect to find in a Star Trek story, but modern storytelling sensibilities. Oh. So you know, serialized, awesome. very complex, very multi-layered plots going on. Um, it's, you know, it's not dystopian. It's not dark and gritty for the sake of being dark and gritty. It's just much more sophisticated than the original series was in terms of storytelling approach. It's, and I, I don't mean to diss the original series. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying television was written a different way back then. It's written a different way now. And I think it embraces that format while still retaining many of those things we love about Star Trek. I think it's going to be cool. I know I'm biased, but that's just the way y'all are going to have to deal with it, people. So. <laughs> no, that all sounds good to me. I'm excited. And you know, they mentioned at Las Vegas that it's more of an ensemble and not just on a central character, which I thought is cool. All I can say is I wouldn't have taken the gig and I wouldn't have committed to a year of, in the cone of silence if I didn't believe in what it was doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say. I, I don't know what else I can say. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I've I've made no secret on here uh, how excited I am about it. So, you know, to hear the people involved with it and they keep saying the things you're saying that, you know, it really embraces the ideals and the message behind Star Trek. You know, that's exactly what I want to hear. And, and the more I hear that, the more jazzed I am. That's awesome. Once we get along and probably by the time I, my, my Discovery novel is out and we're back talking about it, enough of the show will have aired that I'll be able to share like little snippets of ridiculous conversations. And I, and I say ridiculous, it's like, it's just the, the insanity of, I can't believe we're, we're talking about this, but that's how serious they're taking it. You know, the, the conversations about little bits of Trek minutia um, that Kirsten and other writers in the room sweated over the details. They sweated over to try to get it right. I mean, you know, not slavish adherence to the tiny things that nobody would really care about, but I mean, just the spirit of it. I mean, it's, I mean, I've literally have answered the phone and instead of her saying hello, she says, I have a Star Trek emergency. And we start talking for an hour about <laughs> something that she's trying to figure out. Mm. So I can't wait to be able to to talk about specifics. Um, I mean, I'm like I said, I think the shadow just moved. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, that scene in Mission Impossible where he's got the wrist thing and he's, it's a sound meter and it's going from green to orange to red. And if it goes to red, it's going to set off the alarm. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm like one bar away from setting off the alarm. So I'm going to back off a little bit and be quiet. Um, yeah, because we don't want them to shut this show down either. We just reached 200. We want to get beyond that. I'm pretty sure I haven't tripped over any lines or anything, but I'm just, you know, I'm excited. It's hard to contain enthusiasm. It's It's been a lot of fun. And and I'm just on the periphery. You know, let me make, you know, let me make that perfectly clear. I'm not involved in the show's development at all. Right. I am just a guy with ringside seats. So, 
but it's been a lot of fun. Well, we get excited about every Star Trek book, every comic, and we get excited about a new Star Trek series, and so we're we're pumped. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> well, with you know, I'm 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 hoping that your enthusiasm will be rewarded. I'm sure it will be. I have no doubts. Hey Dan, is yeah Bruce is is he gone? I, I think so. <sighs> I'm. Thank you. A little worried. Was he really here the whole time? He was here the whole freaking time for 200 episodes. He's just been hiding like in, in the green room and looking for a mini bar. Oh man, I got to get some M&Ms or something. Oh my gosh. Wait, now that I think about it, if he's been here for 200 episodes, he's probably still here. He's just not talking. He's just listening. He's like control. First, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> anyway of course we love having Dayton here we had to invite him for the 200th episode because he was on our first and it was perfect timing because of the Klingon travel guide and I just saw him as we record this a week ago at Star Trek Las Vegas so it I feel like it's you know Dayton Ward day you realize the silence every time you bring up Vegas is just me seething over here in pools of jealousy <laughs> it's okay I you, you'll go next year. Oh, I really wanted to go. Okay. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> Amy Nelson tried to get you to come. She was really working it. I know. I know. Every time she messaged me, I, I really did want to go. And yes, uh, you know, universe willing next year. Yes, I will go for sure. Um, but yeah, so 200 episodes. That's pretty cool. And we have some people from some other networks that uh, wanted to make their voices known on our show. So here's some of the other hosts of some of the other shows you may enjoy on the Trek FM network. So 200 episodes of literary treks, Dan, Scott, Bruce, congratulations. Yes, this is Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek. An interloper on the Ready Room and low many of these Trek FM podcasts over the years. I mean, this is amazing. It's your own little bicentennial. I'm, I'm kind of shocked that there's no Literary Treks bicentennial, you know, toilet paper or Literary Treks bicentennial ashtrays. I don't know, commemorative hats. But it's a big, it's a big deal nonetheless. In fact, I was looking around the network and I think I could be wrong, but it looks like To the Journey is the only other series that's surpassed uh, 200 episodes that has more. I could be wrong. I was doing a little research also, heaven forbid, a nonfiction person do that. And apparently I'm here congratulating you, even though I have only appeared and not since episode 26. <laughs> Back in 2013, when the uh, series was hosted by two posers named Chris Jones and Matthew Rushing, Rushing, uh, it's been a while, and you've obviously come up with plenty of material to to go with since then. Uh, obviously, the guests have been people who oh I don't know turn out actual narrative fiction uh, and sell many best-selling numbers of copies, and and good on you for doing that. Um, it really is amazing, seriously, that the infrastructure of Star Trek of fandom, you know, in the laptop technology era, podcasting and everything else, it still sets me back on my heels a little bit to think about how much 
is now not just written, but is said in media, in audio, in video, hyper-analyzing every aspect of Star Trek and all the spin-offs, all the sidebar material. And now that we're in the era of Discovery, it's a little more heightened because it won't be quite so sidebar. Not, not true canon, but a few bars along on that spectrum canon. Anyway, guys, uh, you have an amazing road ahead of you. As we enter the Discovery era, nothing is going away with all the other incarnations and the, and the media, the novels. And I would just say this. I might venture back on these shores, on these stages. Here's an idea. Someday, let's do some historical bits about uh, some of those wonderful golden oldie, major heart glow as a kid reference books and nonfiction from the past. And I could probably weave together some of the behind the scenes stories of some of them. Since the way has been forged way back in <clears throat> episode 26 that we talked about stellar cartography, that you might be open to non-narrative fiction. Anyway, 200 episodes is amazing with everybody involved who got you there. You guys are carrying the torch, just don't burn the pages with it. And uh, many, 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 many more voyages of literary treks. Here's to you guys. Hi, this is Aaron Harvey, host of Saturday Morning Trek and co-host of The Edge, our new Star Trek Discovery podcast. And I just wanted to congratulate everyone at Literary Treks on 200 episodes. 200, which as Spock would say, is 9.0909 times as many episodes as the animated series. And there is rarely an episode of our show where we don't reference Literary Treks, whether it's related to your reviews of the Gold Key comics, the books by Christopher L. Bennett and James Swallow, even though they call Eric's a Triaxian, which he's not, have me on and we'll debate this, or even Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore's fun IDW homage to the Gold Key comics. And that's just a tiny slice of the huge literary world you cover. I'm looking forward to your take on the upcoming Star Trek Discovery books and comics, and of course, I'm looking forward to many, many more episodes of Literary Treks. So, Dan Gunther and Bruce William Gibson, live long and read on. Paid for by the Committee for Eric's and Adosian. We, hosts of Earl Grey, would like to congratulate Literary Treks on their 200th episode. This is a major milestone and we are very grateful to be associated with them here on Trek FM. Congratulations, guys. Uh, it's definitely a, a great show that you guys have gone so far. Uh, been listening since Matt uh, started it and, and Bruce took over and it's great to hear Dan as well. You guys are fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Like 200 episodes is, is some achievement. Um, yeah, wow. And I think the most important thing, you know, regardless of whether it's, it's talking about Star Trek, the books or the graphic novels, anything that encourages people to read um, is always something I would approve of. And I think it's one of our most important shows here on Trek FM for that reason alone. Yeah, we can all tune into Netflix and enjoy a 45 minute episode or a 100 minute episode, uh, movie. But there's something special about sitting down with a book and reflecting on it, making the time. And I think sadly too many people just don't have the time to read these days. And anything that encourages that and promotes reading and promotes the, these books that authors are making is something that we should always be applauded. So well done to all the cast and uh, the team behind uh, Literary Treks for 200 episodes. Like, bravo, it's, it's some achievement. Yeah, congratulations to Literary Treks and the hosts, um, Dan Gunther and... Um and Bruce Gibson. Uh, for me, Literary Treks is very, very special because I probably wouldn't 
might not be here without it. Literary Treks was the first Trek FM podcast I ever listened to because I was very much into the the novels at the time. This was about, I think, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And I thought, oh, here's this thing that talks about a book I just read. Let me listen to it. At the time, uh, Matt and and Chris were, were hosts. And I loved it. I just loved hearing them talk about the books, but not not only that, they get to interview the authors. You get to hear from the creators of these books, what was going into it, what their process was. I love Literary Trek so much, and that led me down the, the path to Trek FM so that now I'm a host on, a co-host on Earl Grey. So thank you guys so much. You've, you've been a huge inspiration in my life. And congratulations on 200 episodes, and I hope you have hundreds and hundreds more in the future. Yes, I also want to give my uh, two cents. I've been on a couple of literary treks recently and definitely have uh, re-energized my commitment to get back to reading the novels. I had started reading the novels quite a bit when uh, TNG came out onto DVD and I just wanted more next gen. And so I went to the library and started reading these books. And since then, uh, you know, stopped as life gets busy and what have you. But now I'm getting back to reading the novels and even more surprisingly, getting to these comic books, the graphic novels and with uh, Mirror Darkly. Oh, no, no. What is it? Oh. Mirror Broken. Yeah, Mirror Broken. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> getting those and, and reading those, a completely new genre for me. So, and that's all to Bruce and Dan. I, I love you guys and wish you the best of luck. This is Brandon Shea-Matella, host of Melodic Treks and co-host of Warp 5 and The Edge here on Trek FM. I just wanted to congratulate the hosts of Literary Treks for 200 wonderful episodes on the books and comics of Star Trek. Literary Treks was my entry point into Trek FM. I remember finding a post on David R. George III's Facebook page talking about a recent interview that he had conducted with the hosts of Literary Treks. So I checked it out. I loved it, found other people who loved the books as much as I do, and decided I'm going to check this out. I listened to a whole bunch of episodes. I started to read along. But the most amazing thing that I found as I followed along with Literary Treks was my fascination for the new Kelvin Timeline comic books. I listened as you guys described the comic books to me and decided, you know what, I want to check those out. So I started to read the comic books, an area that I'd never before discovered, and fell in love. It was wonderful. It was amazing. And Literary Treks helped to relaunch my fandom in other ways as well, because I found other shows on the Trek FM network that I listened to. It got me involved with the network. It got me involved with last year's rewatch of From There to Here. So my fandom, the resurgence in my fandom, is all thanks to my discovery of Literary Treks. So Chris Jones, Matthew Rushing, Dan Gunther, and Bruce Gibson, thank you very much. Keep up the wonderful work. And I look forward to, most people would probably say 200 more episodes, but you know what? You guys got a lot more than 200 books left to cover. So I look forward to you guys for a long, long time. Congratulations. Live long and read on. 
wow, that's really awesome to hear from those guys. It's, uh, I, I mean, you know, 200 episodes is a big deal. Of course, Bruce, you and I haven't been here for that whole time. So I want to say a very special thank you to Matt Rushing and Chris Jones, of course, for getting this all started and making a really awesome show. I mean, you and I, we love being on the show, but, you know, there's some pretty big shoes to fill, and I definitely do appreciate what came before. And I feel like, you know, it's it's a huge responsibility that we've inherited, and it's a lot of fun, but, you know, literary treks would be nothing without the hard work of those two. Absolutely. I so appreciate them. As as I mentioned earlier in the show, this is the kind of show I've always wanted to listen to. I was so glad when the two of them launched it. I listened to every episode as they came out. Over time, I got to know both of them. And I, I never would have imagined that I would be on the show on a regular basis. I never asked to be. I was asked to try it out i was like okay i'll try it i hope dan doesn't mind i hope this guy dan likes me i hope we you know i hope we have some (laughs) chemistry or something but i was like and and like dayton you know he reads your reviews and so do i i mean i was i knew who you were when the first time you appeared on literary treks i'm like i know who that guy is i read his reviews (laughs) and now we do this every week Yeah, well, I mean, and no worries about about me not liking you because, yeah, when, when Matt said that you were going to be coming on the show, I was really excited. And really, really quickly, you know, your unique voice and what you bring to the show is indescribable. I love it. I love talking with you every week about the books and comics, and it's so much fun. And it's just great to geek out with someone who's as passionate about this stuff as I am. So thank you, Bruce, for being awesome oh man now now we're getting all serious i'm gonna start crying (laughs) and i i i i obviously appreciate everything you've done dan and you know it's you have been such a great partner to work with it's not always easy doing podcasts and sometimes people bring their own dramas to shows and people sometimes don't show up on time or whatever it's you're so good to work with. You have great ideas. You have great insight into the novels. I was coming in this like, I'm not going to have as, I don't think as great insight to novels as Dan does and like Matt does. And I'm like, well, you know what? I just need to come here and geek out about novels like I do all the time. You know, I'll let you do the heavy lifting and come up with the intelligent <laughs> stuff. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I think about you. That's a little distressing. <laughs> See, you never know. So there you go. We think that the same way. So yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun, and uh, I I would love to sit here uh, for another two hundred. Awesome, at least I think for sure. Yeah. Well, all of those uh, hosts that you just heard from all of those podcasts, you can find them and us wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. So if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Apple Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. You know, it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus there are great conversations happening about all of the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group and we'll let you right in. We'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shemutala for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not hanging out at the snapped Batleth, getting a little drunk on Warnog, and hopefully not headbutting that Klingon over there, where can we find you? Oh, uh, you can, I don't know Klingonese. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking, of course, about Star Wars. And that can be found at StarWarsReport.com. And I do that show with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And you can also find me in the Babel Conference. And just a quick shout to Greg Rosier, who I got to hang out at Star Trek Las Vegas with him. Got to know him better. So that was really cool. So, Dan, when you're not sitting around asking yourself adjectives and adverbs and nouns and verbs for <laughs> Mad Libs, where can people find you? <laughs> well, you can find, you know, funny story. I do have to say I did order that Mad Libs book special on Amazon for this show. So I don't know. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I might have been a little silly, but it was a lot silly of Silly is good. Yeah, definitely. Everybody needs to be silly every once in a while. But when I'm not uh, trying to fill out Star Trek Mad Libs, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. Uh, treklit.blogspot.com is my book review website. And you can also find me kicking around the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.